Hello everyone and welcome back to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I am the Grumpy Surfer and your host, Ads Lyson. Well, let's get to it. It is 2022 New Year. Happy New Year to you all. And I hope you had an absolutely amazing festive season. I know I did in Devon, the UK with my family. Lots of surfing, lots of jujitsu. Seeing a bit of the family at the beginning of December. Opening Christmas presents with the kids. It's been super, super fun. So before we get into the podcast this week, a couple of discount codes for you. The first one is for Braw Surf, a Scottish surfing brand. For their merchandise, go to brawsurf.co.uk and use the code, capital letters, Grumpy Surfer to get 20% at the checkout. Also to get 10% off the most amazing surfing program that I've been doing for the last two to three months. Ombi Surf, go through the links of ombi.co forward slash ref forward slash grumpy surfer. The link will take you straight in and automatically take a 10% discount off before you go into your 12 week program or any of the other programs that are there. Like I said before, absolutely amazing programs. The apps are really slick, really clean, really, really easy to use. I know I'm saying really a lot. It's the best surfing program I've seen and I've used. Incorporate surf skates, bow shoe balls, cardboard surfer, and the insight from Clayton Nineaber and Anthony Lay, who is the co-host. Superb content, guys, so get yourself amongst that. So this week's podcast is with a guy who created a charity in South Africa called Surfers Not Street Children. He started this about 25, 30 years ago when he was living in Durban and now runs the charity in like Durban and also runs the charity in Mozambique. So please enjoy my conversation of surfing, life, living in the UK with an absolutely amazing guy, Tom Hewitt MBE. Tom Hewitt, MBE, welcome to the podcast. Ah, great to be here. Mate, three questions that I always do at the start. First one is, how are you? Second one is, where are we? And third question is, have you surfed today? Uh, I haven't surfed today, answering the third question first. Uh, we are in uh, Braunton in Devon, UK. And what was the first question? How are you? Oh, I'm pretty good. Yeah, all good, thanks. Your, uh, your your kids and the guys that are affiliated to your uh, charity have been pretty busy over the last few months, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, it's been a, it's been a busy time. It's been great to have uh, a guy called Mini Cho who runs our Mozambique program over here with uh, a girl called Sne Makubu, who's a nineteen-year-old ripper from South Africa who's attached to Surfers Not Street Children as well. That's been awesome, and obviously they've been spending time with my son, Siander, who surfs here. And uh, yeah, they got so lucky. They had like one of the best swells in, in so long. I think it's probably one of the best swells that I've, I've surfed in the last couple of years, purely for the fact that COVID just took a big kick in the nuts last year as well. And the size of the swell as well kind of kept the hordes of people at bay a little bit too, right? Yeah, that Sunday... Um, you know, I certainly had what I would consider my, my maybe my best wave at, at Croyd. I mean, you know, I've been surfing, been over here a bit in the last few years, so I've got used to Croyd. What a spot. 
um, but that was definitely sort of on the on the A list days. But you know what what seems to happen after you get a absolute cooker is you get rinsed, and I got absolutely drilled afterwards. So uh, you know, I still walked away thinking about the ride rather than the wipeouts. But uh, yeah, it was super fun. Isn't that the way? And I've I've had situations like that where. You go, you have a really good ride, whether it's a really long one or you've nailed a massive turn or you've you managed to get a little cover up or something like that. And then you're like, that, I'll stay out for another half an hour or get one more wave and either it goes flat. You don't catch anything because you're not in the right position or you just get smashed. And they, yeah. it kind of semi put, puts a bit of a dampener on it, doesn't it, sometimes? Yeah, you get whipped. And, you know, the other one is, uh, is we call it last wave syndrome. When you tell yourself you're gonna have that last wave, so you put you overamp it, you put you put so much into it, and that's when you get injured. Yeah, it's very, very, <laughs> very, very true. So a little bit of background for people. You run a charity in South Africa, Mozambique. Is there anywhere else? That's our two operating areas. Yeah, called uh, Surfers Not Street Children. But you're also going right back to sort of like the infancy of that. You also started by running a charity called Durban Street Team. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But like I like to do with all these, and I think I say the same things at the start of all my podcasts, is let's take it right back to the beginning. So where are you originally from and from and where? how did you get into surfing? Yeah, I'm from the UK. Uh, even though I've, uh, I still think I sound very English. Occasionally someone says, you sound South African. I've lived most of my life in South Africa. Um, in South Africa, I definitely still sound English. Um, but I grew up uh, close to the South Coast and I actually visited the US and, and saw surfing and, um, and learned to surf when I was about 14 years old and, and completely bit the bullet, was stoked on it. I skated as well uh, throughout my teens and at the age of 18, I went out to South Africa. Uh, my parents had been uh, into social causes. So issues like apartheid and, and other social issues around the world were talked about in our household. Um, so I went out as a, as a volunteer in the anti-apartheid movement, which was pretty fascinating. And, uh, you know, like, Gap year volunteering was not a really big thing at the time. It became a big thing. But this was, if you can imagine uh, that type of thing, but in quite a volatile situation that the, in 1990, um, South Africa, it, it, people weren't quite sure which way it was going to go. It was coming into this new era. And Nelson Mandela was just coming out of jail at the time. And uh, there was a sort of civil war happening uh in the country, um, which was sort of put into place as a destabilizing action from the the, gov the apartheid government. So there was all sorts of things happening in the country and it was quite an eye-opener for an 18-year-old. But weirdly, um, you know, I, I was in South Africa doing that, but I still had this backdrop in my life of just loving surfing. So, you know, I've got you know, one eye on on the, the social issues, which were, I was kind of being educated to. And then, you know, obviously I was also looking at the waves and we went up into Mozambique during the Civil War um, and I was with uh, peace organizations there and we couldn't, like, it was, we couldn't get out of Maputo. So I knew that there was these cooking waves at Inyaka Island and, you know, further north and there's no way we could get to them. So it was a, it was a, a strange experience to have 
as an 18 year old to be exposed to those to that type of world um but interestingly if you fast forward all, all the way to now and i'm 50 now i still love surfing and i'm still very interested in social issues and we had this conversation before we turned the microphones on where we've got two completely different contrasts not I guess mentally, but kind of the physical aspects of of conflict, where I've spent, you know, the first fifteen to sixteen years of my military career going away and fighting wars in the Middle East in the military. Whereas, like you've been exposed to war fighting as a civilian without the aspect of being able to look after yourself or protect yourself with guns or rifles or have a team with you. And I've never really thought of it in that way of being in that sort of situation and for you to embed yourself with these different organizations to potentially help people that you know have been injured or maimed or to, to help them in some sort of situation where they want to move out of the area where they are because because of the war fighting it must have been quite a harrowing experience especially as a as a young guy seeing all these potentially horrific scenes in front of you and trying to do something about it as well yeah definitely there's been uh, moments where i mean when i went into mozambique during the civil war i mean it was quite frightening actually because you're you're in a there's a war you can hear around you um but you don't have any control and so you're really whoever you're with you're at the sort of you're just going to hope they're making good decisions and they're informed um so it's definitely that um, I think in South Africa, um, it was a it was a, a hectic time because you know there was there was a fear that it would slide into anarchy, and if I'm to be honest with you, I think I had that kind of youthful ignorance, kind of it won't happen to me, that slight invincibility thing, um, which is naivety really, uh, probably carried through in in those early days. Um, I look back on it and and I don't know if I understood the gravity of some of the situations that I just walked into. Um, probably if I did, I wouldn't have done them, but you know, there it is. Yeah. Retrospect's a good thing though, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a few things that I've done uh, a little bit recklessly that I look back and like, how the fuck did I survive that? <laughs> so how did you get involved with these organizations and sort of like develop into what you do now with uh, surfers and not street children. So what were the sort of like the first organizations you were part of? Yeah, so what happened was when I was in uh, Mozambique during the Civil War, um, I went to meet with a peace activist and I actually went for dinner. Um, I remember it very clearly because actually I was I was actually quite hungry. And those days food was like meat was, was hard to come by. So it was this super skinny chicken and that we were all going to eat. And I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm so hungry. Um, but anyway, it was the most generous uh, guy. And afterwards he, he said, I just want to introduce you to these, um, these friends of mine. So I thought, yeah, okay, they'll be his buddies, whatever, you know, sounds cool. Went downstairs and outside his uh, house was a row of kids. I mean, in the hundreds sleeping on the streets. And I was like, shit, this is serious. Like they're, they're like literally homeless. And honestly, I had no idea that kids would, would be homeless. It hadn't really crossed my mind that it could be a thing. And um, I don't know why it just hadn't come into my sphere of, uh, <laughs> of thinking. 
And I was really shocked that, and they were all obviously refugees from the civil war up country, um, lost parents. And uh, this guy was was a known sort of peace activist and and um, an Episcopal priest. Um, and so they trusted him, and he and he was a trustable guy. But obviously, he didn't have like a home for them. And it blew me away that they were outside his house sleeping. He made sure they had blankets, they had food. There were people sort of keeping an eye. And I just thought, man, that is insane. And I carried that back with me into South Africa. And when I got back to South Africa, I was asking the people that I was involved with, uh, which at the time was the ANC, which is the uh, was the liberation movement. I was saying, you know, what's, what's happening with the street kids? Because I started noticing that it was street children in South Africa as well. And of course, they're like busy with the macro transition from apartheid into the new South Africa. So it's not that they're uncaring about street children, but they're like, uh, I don't know what's happening with them. So you got to imagine that an 18 year old, which is what it was at the time. Honestly, there's not that much that I had to offer. You know, you're talking about a, an experience liberation movement run by local black South Africans who are the right people to be leading their liberation and to be you know actioning it so I was just a, a very sort of like you know a kid really that was just trying to be part of it all but didn't have much to offer so one of the things I I, I did was I, I befriended a group of street kids um, in an area of the Eastern Cape uh, bizarrely called East London um, South Africans will be familiar with East London it's actually great surf around East London oh my goodness it's like so good but um, this group of kids, and this would be around 91, 92, had such a massive impact on me because for the first time I started to be exposed to their, to their life. And it wasn't just literally being homeless. It was all the other really serious shit that went on. You know, the abuse, you know, the way they were treated like the rubbish of society. Um, and, you know, also realized that it was so difficult to get out of that. So you could be dealt such a bad card um, and maybe even offered a way out but because of all the trauma and the addiction and stuff it was so difficult to even make positive decisions so all that complexity was kind of I, I just saw it firsthand and so I just I you know I'd asked the um, you know the connections I had there you know is there anyone helping the street kids and they told me of this little place um, and uh, they said oh it's in one of the the local townships so I did what um, was pretty inconceivable to anyone who wasn't a local to that township. Um, I walked into the township on foot in 1991, which is like one of the most volatile times, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. It was a, it was a dangerous thing to do. And that's, you know, that's no criticism on the people. You, you, you know, it had been so badly, um, you know... Uh, uh, the experiences of apartheid on that township. I mean, there'd been a massacre there, and so me as a as a white guy walking in, you know, from England, super naively, just walking in. I'll find this place, and actually, a couple of guys on the way were like, "Oh, you know, where where are you going?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to find this place," and and they, they said, "Oh, we'll we'll go with you." So they kind of escorted me through, and I found this incredible program um, for kids that was like facing closure this awesome African mama who was running the place. And um, and that was the first place I just said, oh, I don't have much to offer, but I just want to be involved. And, and yeah, got this, this kind of, this mama took me under her wing and kind of, you know, we started working from there. It's one of those things that I think people really 
don't pay close attention to, especially during conflicts, is you've got this main war fighting mm. type of thing going on or, you know, local skirmishes or, or whatever it is. And if you look at the way that the media, you know, perceives it, like um, like Afghanistan, for instance, I'll use that mm. as the example, is you see all these fully grown men running around with rifles, shooting each other, blowing, blowing each other up. You see the Westerners going over there and, you know, trying to westernize a country or whatever. But out of all of this, you don't see the fallout of how the kids have to deal with it, mm. how the scared families and the women have to deal with it. One one of the things that really deeply affected me on my last tour was I was in a, a patrol base, like quite far up from, from Sangam. And um, the Taliban were trying to plant IEDs, but they were planting them in the like the local villages where the kids played and all that sort of thing. I don't know where their morals lay because for me, anything to do with kids breaks me. I can't I can't watch any form of abuse. Mm. I can't hear about it. Mm. It 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 makes me super angry. I've got two kids at home. Mm. I don't know whether it's that. Even before that probably was I was the same. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit. So this guy was out the back of these compounds and he was he was digging an IED and and the kids were playing around him and it went off and it and it basically took out a bunch of kids. Mm. And the locals brought all these kids to the um, to the back gate where we were, and I was sort of like the co- like the commander for that day, basically. And and I was the first first one there. And you had all these kids laid out, and I just went to the first one that looked looked the worst. Started triaging these these kids. And then the rest of the medics and stuff, and they all came out. And I just remember working on this kid. And it, it's not a horrific image that stays with me. It's not like I haven't got PTSD from anything. Mm. But whenever I'd, whenever we talk about conflict and things like you're mm. talking about there, I just see this kid's head. And what had happened was he'd had blast injuries, but the only blast injuries he'd really had was was to his face. And the skin had been taken off from like his eyes down to his cheek and you could see his like jaw. And he was just lying there breathing normally. There was no blood or anything like that. Not that I can remember anyway. And I just thought, this is, this is horrendous. Like, why would somebody, why would somebody even do this? Mm. If you had a bunch of kids around you, I'd shoo them away, get their mums to, to, to get rid of them. Mm. But why would you still carry on doing what you're doing with kids around you like I, I i i couldn't fathom it so going on to sort of trying to in, in contrast what what you're talking about in africa is the the genocide that's happened within that country i don't think mentally we have the capacity to fathom what has and what is still going on there i i'd, I'd hate to think it so doing what you do now giving these kids something to look forward to and they can almost see there's almost like a bit more of a golden lining behind it. Well, it's more than commendable. But I just feel like if there are people like you that have started, you know, when you were 18 years old doing this, it's pretty fantastic if I'm perfectly honest. Well, thanks for your encouragement. I I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, there there have been horrific... uh, 
instances across the continent of Africa. And actually, sadly, if you look back at it, a lot of it was sort of like stems out of the the colonial uh, you know structures and and false borders and and the the style of colonialism and and it, the the continent seems to have had to deal with so much it's, it is horrific but um yeah what i what i could see in in the mozambique scenario and then of course in south africa as it was transforming was uh a bottom line you know kids are kids and i always struggled with the the feeling that the reality that's you know what is what is what is true reality i mean or, or you know what i what is familiar to me um seems so real and uh, so for example growing up with a family um i was fortunate enough um, to have a good upbringing that just feels normal to me and yet the reality that kids have growing up on the streets or growing up in war is also as normal and as real to them as my reality and i always thought geez that's so that's so heavy because you know it's a roll of a dice i mean there's 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 almost just luck involved with this i mean you got you know you're born into a scenario and that's that's the cards um you're dealt and um but what was interesting was that uh the as i started working with the kids in the eastern cape the thing that i realized was that whatever the experience whatever the cultural background um, whatever the nationality, whatever the color, a kid is a kid. And the experiences, the things that would make the kids laugh in the, the, in this little project that I started volunteering at in the Eastern Cape, um, were the same things that would make my younger brother, who's 10 years younger than me at the time, laugh when he was that age. And I just realized kids are kids. And so it just became one of those things for me that um, I wanted to be part of the new South Africa. I wanted to contribute. I didn't have much to offer, frankly. I wasn't of much use. I wasn't like one of these people who came in with um, a really good deal, but, you know, something I could offer. But the, the local South Africans uh, who had been involved in the liberation movement, the black South African community largely, um, were just so generous in spirit to me it was like just wanting to be part of the new south africa was enough it didn't matter that i didn't really have much to offer so when i turned around to them and said well maybe i could just get involved with helping the street kids and maybe they were like yeah that's great you know it was kind of problem problem solved you know they probably were just making sure i was safe and okay um but for me as as that sort of 18 year old kid in the midst of it it was just something i could sort of you know bite bite off and chew and 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 also uh you know i, I got to work with these really cool people that were, were fighting to keep this uh, program from from closing down and the area of of east london we actually had quite an impact on the on the number of kids in the area um and after a while i'd heard that durban was the epicenter of the street kids crisis of the time and at the in those days it was a crisis because you're having displaced kids from the uh from the political violence there was a civil war at the time between um the, the anc and what was called the ifp so the ifp was funded uh in a sort of contra movement way was funded by the nationalist government at the time or armed by the nationalist government to destabilize the liberation so your classic sort of contra scenario 
And um, so there was a civil war brewing in, in KwaZulu-Natal. So we were getting the kids coming down from that political violence, them living on the streets in Durban. And then, of course, at the same time, you had the pandemic, AIDS. And AIDS was, was, was pushing in. And over time, actually, the, 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 the numbers of kids just swelled in Durban. I mean, I'm talking now the 90s. And throughout the 90s, and it, you know, over time, the political violence lessened, but AIDS just kicked in. I mean, we were in the absolute epicenter of that crisis. So um, I went up to Durban primarily because that was where the situation was worst. And Surfers Not Street Children was called Durban Street Team to start with. I, I founded it in 1998. Uh, we renamed it in 2012. And it was simply set up because I just can't, I still to this day don't believe that any child should have to live on the streets. And, uh, and anything we can do to, to transform the lives with, with the kids themselves and their communities um, is worth fighting for. And also there are kids who don't live on the streets but are still affected by street life that goes on in their communities around them. And, you know, the organisation's there for them too. How did you develop that from being a, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old kid to coming up with the idea of doing the Durban Street Teams to, to make it a charity where you're actually going to make a difference to these people? Because I, I can imagine you, like me with business, never experienced that before didn't know how to set a charity up or anything like that so did did you have guidance from from certain people or did you just feed into the uh, the place where you went initially uh, and kind of learn off those it's a really good question and weirdly i haven't been asked that one before oh really yeah um and south africa at the time was was anarchy so and that's not a diss it was coming out of um the apartheid era a system that was built for a minority and, and suddenly the walls came down and it tried to uh, be there for the majority and, and just crumbled in many ways at the time. Although there was sort of really great positivity um, from Nelson Mandela and others trying to transform it. But everyone knew this is the, this is the job at hand. Um, and then there was no welfare system uh, for black children at the time. So that welfare system just split at the seams because it was a welfare system for uh, the white minority. And so um, we, I, I often say that where we were, where, where we were able to operate was that in a situation of anarchy, we were able to set something up of integrity. But, and this speaks to your question, fast forward that um, over time, the structures were developed within South Africa in certain realms. And so the welfare system was developed and uh, professionalism became really important. And what was interesting is we had to develop throughout that time because obviously I came in, um, I mean, I, I was totally, I had no training whatsoever. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be mentored uh, by people during that time in, in the Eastern Cape uh, not just around the issues pertaining to working with children, but also um, politically. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to um, you know, meet people like the wife of the late Steve Biko, um, who the the activist who was murdered in 1977, and you might have seen the film Cry Freedom. Um, and um, his wife, I think, probably thought I was a bit of a liability, and sort of, um, you know 
connected me to Steve's older brother, Kaya, and they kind of politically mentored me and um, uh, spent time with me at least. And, um, you know, the auntie at the, or the mama at the project I was working, that gave me the tools with which to at least get through that, that initial trying to put something in place that was better than having nothing in place that was caring for the kids and had their best interest. But what we had to do over time was take the organization from being the best out of a bad situation into being something really professional. And as we developed, what I tried to do was was hire people that like, for example, the right social workers, the right psychologists, the right professionals to do the work, because obviously I w- that was not my not my training. Uh, the, 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 the era changed from being that sort of chaos of a changing uh, political dynamic to one where you know, every sphere was trying to professionalize. It must have been quite difficult in the, in the start as well, because none of this comes for free. Mm. <clears throat> Getting people involved, trying to spread the word of what you're doing, even still now, because it's still a charity, right? You, you, you get investments from people to, to help these um, to help these kids out. So initially, trying to sell something like that to people to get them involved, which then in turn gives you the funding then to be able to buy accommodation, mm. bedding, pay for the psychologists, pay for the welfare workers. I know nothing about charities. I'm literally just going off the top of my head what I think maybe goes in behind the background activities to all of this. But it must have been quite a daunting prospect to start with and you must have had to learn really quickly on the run to be able to gain that funding to create that yeah initially i mean essentially what i was able to do at the beginning was use the fact that i had a little bit of um you know i knew people in the uk and the the rand to the pound at the time meant that if we raised a little bit of money through friends and family in the UK, it actually went a long way. Believe it or not, that's how it all started. Because this organization that I started volunteering with, I mean, it, it was struggling to even stay open. And in a sense, using the, the privilege that I had, um, you know, growing up where I did. And, you know, even though we didn't have money per se, I, I had the ability to, to rally people here um, which, which is kind of a privileged position to be in. So that's how we did it in the beginning, just rallied family and friends and everyone, you know, kind of begging bowl, tipping a hat type thing. And uh, and over time, yeah, we had to, you know, you, you talk about sustainability, but if you're, if you're relying on donations, sustainability is a strange word because you, how would you become sustainable in, in those circumstances? What we've done over the year is developed a, a network of, of supporters, um, what I call an army of small givers. So, you know, people who sign up to sort of £5, £10 a month. And that's really a foundation. And then any donations we raise on top of that for specific things, obviously that's a bonus, but you can't guarantee that that, that doesn't last forever. So if you lose one of those big ones and you're, you've only got those, then when you lose it, what, what do you do? But if you've got that army of small givers, I mean, we've always been, uh, we've always punched above our weight and we've done things on on small budgets. But what we have had is we've always been able to demonstrate um, that we do what we say we do. Um, and so we've had that integrity, which people have, you know, people understand. And then we've also had good brand because, you know, I haven't really spoken about how we came on to being connected to surfing 
Um, but we... Um, I was coming on to that. <laughs> I was yeah. coming on to it. <laughs> but we've managed to develop really good brand, which we'll get on to. Um, so the, I think it's better to have integrity and brand and no money because you can then use the integrity and brand to develop uh, partnerships. Um, and, you know, sometimes if you haven't got the integrity and the brand, you're just given a lump sum of money. You know, once that money's done, you're done, you know. So with the Durban street teams, I read that you went through a series of like different sporting activities that you tried to get the kids into or get them involved with them to try and keep them away from like the gangs and the drugs and all that sort of thing. So how did, how did, I mean, it's a silly question to ask because you're a surfer, but how did all of that develop into actually bringing it to the coastline and creating a basically like a surfing fraternity charity that it is what it is now? I always surfed. So for me, I was surfing and then working with street kids. It was two separate things. And the kids that uh, were playing, we had programs that were related to soccer, art, drama, music, all sorts of things. It was really fun. Um, but then the one day, I have told this before, but I think it's you know, at risk of repetition. It's worth, it's a story worth retelling. I was surfing at the pier in Durban, the new pier, I was surfing wedge side of New Pier and um, one of the kids came up to me and uh, you can talk to people on the piers in Durban when you're surfing. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, if you're riding the bowls, it's a bit more difficult if there's a good swell and you're riding the back line. But if you're riding in the bowls, which is super fun, little skate parks. Um, so this kid came up to me and it's like, Tom. So I'm like, oh, yeah. The kid's name was Tula. I said, hey, Tula, how you doing? He says, I want to surf. Now, I knew the kid could swim. So, uh, so I, and it was like, three foot max two two to three feet super clean glassy you know uh, time between sets uh it's warm water so he had bodies because the kids kind of wear shorts mostly anyway so i said okay jump off the pier he jumps off the pier i put the leg rope on him push him into the wave and he doesn't stand up but he rides that on his belly all the way in now i can't see him i'm behind the wave but i can hear him i can hear him hooting all the way to the beach and he grabs his board kind of half tripping over the leash, runs around, straight back up the pier, jumps off again, wants to do it again. Honestly, it was a light bulb moment. I was like, why did I not think of this? You know, I spent my life surfing or helping these kids. I get so much stoke from surfing. Why did I not think that the kids might, um, you know, and I think part of it was I didn't want to be imposing what I liked on, you know, a guy comes in from elsewhere, likes surfing, so the kids must surf because he surfs. I didn't want to be that guy. But the kids wanted to surf. So we, we said, okay, well, let's, let's run a little surf program as part of this. And soon, it like, the kids got so into it. And I think partly because during apartheid, the uh, black people had been banned from the beaches. So, you know, it wasn't that there was no, uh, you know, that culturally this was not a thing. It couldn't have been a thing because black people were not allowed on those beaches. So it was something so new and that these kids kind of felt that they would be, you know, the pioneers and the, the, the vanguard of this new crew of black surfers. It was something within their community that was just so exciting. And one one day I, I we just had a donation from O'Neill, which has been O'Neill has been a longstanding partner of ours and O'Neill, South Africa, um, which is run by a guy called Paul Canning, who is, uh, you may recognize the name from, he was a former uh, ASP 
Charger, so what's now WSL. So he was on the world tour. Um, really great surfer. Um, Paul runs O'Neill in, in Africa and he'd just given a donation of suits. So all the kids in the program had these like awesome uh, uh, three, two wetsuits. And if you know Durban, Durban's like super tropical. Um, we do wear wetsuits in winter, but this day was a um, was sweltering. It was like 34, 35 degrees, 100% humidity, just hot. And so I, I was like to the kids, uh, okay, let's go surfing. So I'm in my boardies. Then they all come into their wets in their wetsuits. I'm like, guys, it's like 35 degrees almost out there. You're gonna you're gonna die in these wetsuits. And they said, no, oh, you don't understand. I was like, okay. They say, uh, and they said, on the way to the beach, we walked through where the the kids lived as as street kids, and so that juxtaposition I always found amazing. These kids in wetsuits and and boardies and whatever, and then the streets was always amazing in my mind. Um, but what they said to me, and this is how we got our name, was they said, you don't understand that when we have our wetsuits on, and we walk through these areas, we're surfers, not street children. And suddenly I realised that. Yeah, this is about identity as well. And I don't mean replacing cultural identity, um, you know, uh, but a, an identity within who they already are. And they were surfers and it came, it gave them dignity. It gave them pride. It gave them identity. It gave them community. It gave them a crew and, it, you know, they could be proud of themselves. And it, that became really important to our work, uh, this idea of, of, of surfing and being part of something, this this new crew of black surfers in post-apartheid South Africa became pretty central to what we do. So you you've got actually got you've got a surf club and a surf house in Durban, which acts as a safe house as well. There's a tofu is, it, is that right? Tofu surf club tofu. in most tofu. Yeah. There we go. Tofu. I, that's my Britishism there. Just saying, <laughs> saying what I see. And then there's also uh, Girls Surf Two, which is uh, based in Durban. So they're they're kind of three sub subtitles to the surfers, not street children brand or charity. You could say, yeah, which is kind of cool. And I think with the surf club and the and the, like the safe house, I think that's kind of a key thing as well because even if you run these almost kind of workshops where the kids come down they can surf inevitably there are still thousands of thousands of kids or hundreds of kids that still want to be part of something but you can't you can't house them all but if they can have some form of identity or be linked to somewhere that can almost be a a home from home for them as well which is kind of cool I don't know is, is that well, yeah, you've hit nail on the head, um, and and for a number of reasons. Uh, so, so what we have is we have the surf club for for surf club read drop in center. It's just a cooler way of saying drop in center, and so kids can come in any time during the day. We're open; they can come in for surf lessons, but we've also got uh, social workers, carers, and you know the hook is the surfing, but the social care is there, and then the the surf house. Although we run loads of different programs there, it's our um, emergency uh, residential facility. But going back to the point that you made, um, yeah, it, for us, we don't want to split families up. So if there's a way of supporting families to stay together, that's the goal. Um, because, you know, a lot of the kids will have a mother um, and, the, and the father sometimes, and they may really be struggling. 
And so our, our primary goal is to provide a place where kids can be with their family, but, but spend the majority of their time in our program. So instead of being at home and spending the majority of your time in the streets, obviously it's a bit different if it's a street, a kid living in the streets, but you know, we want to provide the place where they can spend most of their time. Um, but still have the connection to their family. But we have to work, you know, with, with some of the kids, we're, we're literally rescuing them from the streets. And with others, um, we're providing a place that's a refuge for them so that they can, you know, they're not in the streets during the day and then going home at night. And for others, it's a diversion. So, excuse me, they could easily get into many of the issues related to street life, um, but they haven't yet. And so what the project does in as diversion is gets them into surfing and provides them a, a path based on, you know, bottom line, if you want to surf well, drugs is, is, is really bad if you want to be a, a good surfer. I don't mean from any moral and ethical thing aside and, and health, forget that for one second, although I do believe that as well. For surfing, it doesn't make you surf better, that's for sure. So we immerse the kids in, in surfing and we find that actually because they get so addicted to surfing, they want to improve their surfing. Because they want to improve their surfing, they want time in the water. Because they want time in the water as much as possible and we're prepared to give them that, they're absolutely exhausted in the evening. So instead of going and just hanging out on the streets, they, they just want to sleep. And then they get up, they repeat the same thing and we few, we bring the education into that so they're back in school. So you're filling their time with this new stoke and you're actually at the same time carefully undoing street life. You're looking at addiction, you're working with trauma. And so it's this fusion. The model we use is, is fusing surfing um, with mentorship and, and care. And so surfing's not the model. But man, it fits the model well. You've received an MBE back in 2011. With that MBE, you must have been able to kind of network a little bit deeper. And I know you've got some really cool people on board with, 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 the, uh, with the project. You've got Geordie Smith. Mm. You've got his dad, um, Smith Shapes, yeah. um, that you get boards from. O'Neill as well, which you spoke, spoke about before. So having those integrated links with those certain people must really help as well because it's almost advertising what you're trying to do. And with these people that are, you know, looking to help or be seen to doing things with you guys too, um, must really kind of project that for you as well. Yeah, the, you know, with, with these things, the MBE, I was really grateful for the MBE, not for any sort of self-pat on the back because I work as part of a team. An incredible team and and they are just awesome so i'm i'm super grateful to them just to be part of that um but but the, the why i'm grateful for the mbe is that it just open doors and it enables me to shine a torch on the work of the whole team and on the kids ultimately and so it's a really useful tool um and has helped it has really helped and um we've been fortunate <coughs> to be able to connect to to people uh, around the world I mean firstly locally South Africa um, as time's gone on local surfers such as Geordie um, have shown a real interest and Geordie's become an ambassador for the program um, through O'Neill and O'Neill's one of our of our partners and surfers around the world have really rallied around uh, such as people like Stephanie Gilmore and Kelly Slater in a big way um, and I think I, I try to analyze the reason for this because we certainly are often sort of surfers choice and I think one reason is that although 
we're, we're, they all know what we're trying to achieve and that's they, they absolutely love that we're, we're slightly different from most surf related programs because we're not just so the beginner level of surfing so our work is is really in depth over long periods of time kids can be in the program for 12 years 15 years even and in that time although we're looking at all the different aspects of their lives the one constant is they surf and if you surf for that period of time to the extent that we surf over there um, you're going to get good and so we're one of the few organizations where kids have gone on to surf on the qs um, you know they're they've really turned heads and I think that's really helped us. They're surfing, funnily enough. Um, and for people to know that, they know that if they've been in the program that long, the program must be worth the kids being in, if you know, like the kids like being in it. So I think that's really helped us develop this identity as not just, and there's nothing wrong with being an organization that pushes kids into waves. That's super cool. But our narrative is just a little bit different. We've got kids from, you know, finding their first wave and the stoke smile on their face to kids kind of pulling rodeo flips, you know, it's, uh, it's that whole the gamut. And we've also, where we've, funny enough, done quite well is um, we've always managed to attract the ex- extraordinary. Um, and sometimes uh, people have assumed we, 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 we have the ordinary, but we haven't always had it. And let me explain what I mean by that is we've got some, we've had some really bizarre partners. I mean, so for example, <clears throat> we've, you know, uh, Prince Harry has been a supporter and he's visited us in, in um, South Africa. And, uh, and, and we've also, um, our Mozambique project is um, supported by the current Pope, um, who's a really nice guy. And, um, you know, we're not a religious organization, but he loves what we do and, and supports. By the way, and just on that note, I always joke with people that when, when, uh, when Kelly got involved, it was like, I say, oh man, we got the, We've got the the Pope, we've got the Prince, and now we've got the King. You know, um, bizarrely, Kelly actually um, was the reason that the, the Pope came on board because we did an edit with Kelly that someone in his charitable organization saw and, and that filtered back and that's how we, we got that involvement. But I think having names such as those involved, people have assumed that we must be... Um, super high budget and that type of venture which we're not at all so we've done well on the extraordinary but we haven't all, all often had the the ordinary and and by ordinary i don't mean lesser i mean just you know just your, your normal places funding for an organization like this might come so we've punched above our weight a little bit but going back to your question people are people what it means to have those type of people involved is it just does point towards the work the work and it gives us a chance to and, it, and it's a crude word, but to, when I say marketed, I don't mean that in the sense that a business would market, but we do have to get the message out there in order to get the support. And one of the things I've been thinking about over the last couple of years is, you know, it's hard, especially through a pandemic, to rely on, you know, charitable giving. People do give, and we're so grateful for that. Um, but there must be a way of using this sort of integrity and brand um, to, to, to bring in money that counterbalances this a bit and so we've actually launched our our surfers not street children merchandise uh, recently which is um which has been i think could really help out the the organization in the future exposure in any business is is the only way that you're going to get get your point across what you're trying to do so let's like say having people like kelly slater and geordie smith and the pope and princes and all sorts of people involved with it is only going to 
there's only going to expand that. But one of the things that I, f- I, I was thinking that is kind of key, really, f- especially for the kids, is when they start in a project like this and they see kids that have gone through the last 15 years and they're surfing the QS and some of the best waves in the world, it also gives them a, a projected goal, saying that if I keep this up, you know, potentially I, I could be in that position too. And it's even if it is living on the street, there's almost like an escapism there that if they work hard and they focus, and, that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be there, have to be a professional surfer. But because they're, they're invested in the organization that you've, that you've created and, and almost kind of the, the branding that's behind it, there's also scope for them to be involved with those as well you know, whether it's O'Neill and, or even, you know, if they want to be entrepreneurial and they want to create their own surfing business or, you know, do something similar to what you've done where they're affiliated with you. And there's so many spider's legs that come off this, that it just comes from, from influence and, and having an outsider looking in and also those eyes from being inside it, looking out. That must be quite a, a fulfilling thought as well to to know that you could have a 10-year-old a kid and in 10 years' time, they could be the other side of the world surfing Indo maybe, I don't know. I love that, man. I mean, that's like uh, one of the kids who came through our program, Ntando, um, he was eight, nine years old, sniffing glue on the streets, um, had lost his, his parents and um, he, 10 years later, was on the South African national surfing team at Worlds, World Juniors, um, you know, had his green blazer representing South Africa. You know, an ex-street kid was now a national surfer, um, you know, was sponsored and had a pro, pro junior career. Today, he's full-time in a surf shop and still a sponsored free surfer. I mean, that is an extraordinary success if you think back to where he was as a child. So those type of stories, although... Um, you know, extraordinary and and stories like a kid who's working as a coffee barista is just as as fantastic. But those surfing related ones do inspire the kids who are younger than them. I mean, we've got a girl over uh, in the UK at the moment who who's from Durban, South Africa. Um, she's her and Minnie who runs the program in Mozambique are on a tour of the UK at the moment, and her name is Sne Makubu. And Sne, although she didn't come. Uh, from the street, out of the street situation, she came out of a, a, a good family living in quite difficult circumstances. Um, she learned to surf in the program and she's gone on to be a QS surfer. She surfed in her first adult QS event in Senegal um, recently and she's um, doing going back in December to do the Belito Pro, has also surfed for the South African junior team. I mean, the girls in our program, and we have a really strong program called Girls Surf 2, um, those girls absolutely idolize Snae. So she is someone they can, exactly as you said, they can look up to, they can role model, you know, they can look at her as a role model and, you know, it just gives them something to to aim for. And of course, our program is not about making pro surfers. That's really a byproduct if it happens. It's about giving kids opportunity to transform, uh, to develop and to become independent in them themselves and self-supportive. So ultimately... We're looking to get them into the job market and to get them employed um, or, or into businesses. But when those surf-related stories do come up, the anomalies, they're really fun. 
I want to focus a little bit, you know, five minutes, just talking a little bit about the the riots that happened um, earlier on in the year, and and if that affected what you guys were doing down in Durban um, at all. Because I know that you were um, quite boisterous on social media about it during the time. Um, how did how did that affect what you were doing? Yeah, we were right in the middle of that. Um, a lot of people were, um, but we were right in the middle of the downtown looting. Um, and uh, really, what happened essentially was an, it was an attempted coup, um, and it was a destabilization um, from within. So it was related. <coughs> excuse me. It was related to the um, former president Jacob Zuma, who had been uh, arrested on contempt of court charges related to a corruption charge, and his supporters. Uh, are still very strong within the country and there was a, really what can be tantamount to a, an attempted coup going on the destabilization program a process and the country or at least the region the region of KwaZulu-Natal went into absolute anarchy and chaos and loot widespread looting and and uh, uh, I mean literally you could not get anything in the shops everything was was gone so we had a situation as an organization whereby we were running out of food amazingly we'd, we'd done a grocery shop the day before this happened so yeah like uh, we, we didn't see it coming but that was just you know good fortune um but then after a while for after a few days we're like thinking there is no food about and so um a friend of mine uh, who works at o'neill uh, he started uh, saying well i'm gonna we're gonna try and find food and just ship this stuff into you and um which is kind of dangerous when no one's got food you know, to be the guy carrying food around, you know, so that was pretty, um, pretty special what he did. In the end, we had to fly food in from Cape Town. So groceries had to fly in. That's just extraordinary in South Africa. That's, that's never happened before. I think the country was at breaking point on a, on a number of levels. And, uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, part of it was to sort of, uh, yeah, it, it was a, I mean, without getting too deeply into it, I mean, uh, it was also to to um, undermine the current president, who is actually trying to fight corruption, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, he is actually a man of integrity, but you know, after the years of the Zuma corruption, it's so difficult to undo the damage of of that period. So, uh, yeah, there was a there was a tough time, uh, not just for the families who uh, in in wealthy areas. Um, who were threatened by this, which was happening, and that is true, and I do uh, feel for them, but also for the people in the downtown areas that were among the areas being looted. It was also a really um, dangerous time and, and scary time for the kids in our program. I mean, it was, it was you know, a scary time. When did you move back over to the UK? Uh, I came here uh, for two reasons, and I didn't come here permanently, funnily enough. Uh, I came here because... I wanted to get my uh, the family all on the same passports. Uh, my wife is a South African. Uh, I'm obviously British. My kids have dual nationality. So we wanted to all get the same passports. Um, so what was left was my wife coming over and you have to do five years. So we thought, well, let's do it because at the same time we want to set up Surfers Not Street Children as a British charity in support of the work that's going on out there. So what we've done is we've set that up and... Uh, as well as fundraising, what we do is we provide support like the monitoring, 
learning and evaluating programs we develop here and um, reporting. So we take a lot of the pressure stuff that, that, that we don't need to burden the staff with in South Africa and create ways that they can report with with data and we just fill that all out and do all the stuff that would pull them back from doing the real work of of uh of helping the kids so in a normal world i i sort of live between the south africa mozambique and and now our office at croyd um but over time we, we've set that up and and you know brought the family over here to do that so the kids kind of swap the durban bowls to the croyd uh beachy and uh and all of all of what surrounds that, uh, which the family's absolutely loved. But you know what it's like with kids in teen years, and and my youngest is eight. Uh, everyone kind of gets used to it. So I don't know how quick we are to how how I don't know um, how excited we are to quickly you know leave again and go back to South Africa, as much as we love South Africa as well. So I think we're probably around for a while. Um, I'll continue to go back and forth, but. Uh, but we've had an amazing time in the UK. I mean, I have loved reconnecting to the UK. I'm a, I'm a South Africa fan still, but I, man, connecting to North Devon and, uh, and surfing this side has been just epic. It's been really good for the family as well. My wife actually loves it here as well. Your kids have been doing pretty well for themselves. So you've got Sabella and Sayanda and what's your youngest? Sese, yeah. 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 So your two eldest have just been sponsored by uh, Dry Robe. Um, you've got your O'Neill connection as well, and you know there's a there's a, a a collection of photographers and a media personnel around the uh, North Devon area that are and coaches as well that are getting snaps of, of of your kids absolutely ripping the back out of some waves, and that must be a pretty proud moment for you too. Yeah, it's super fun as long as they enjoy it. I mean, actually, my eldest son Sabella, he doesn't surf; he's uh, he's a skater. Uh, and he, he does modeling for for dry robe um he i mean i love him to bits and i, I knew from day one that he wasn't a uh, gonna love surfing and so i was comfortable with that they didn't have to surf um but he he has so many other interests and, and it's been great for me i just get into the things that he's into and that's been a good journey to learn new stuff as well um then there's uh Siander, he's the surfer so he he's from day one he never even watched kids tv he was just watching surf edits so i knew he loved surfing so uh yeah i've obviously encouraged him and uh and he's he's a good little surfer now and he's got a um he's become an ambassador for the wave in bristol which is which is really exciting and uh and he rides for dry robe and o'neill and uh, a couple of others um so yeah look with the junior surfing you know it's a it's a tricky little one you know as long as the kids are loving it um i mean i'm not pushing him if he if he's not loving being in the middle of it then then there's there's no push from me um but if he if he wants to go that route um then yeah i'll definitely journey with him i think there is something special about being able to surf with your uh son or daughter uh that is i'm, I'm glad that one of my kids does surf uh the jury's out on the eight-year-old whether <laughs> whether he will or not he's taking surfing lessons but I don't know yet, uh, but uh, I, I, some of the most memorable sessions I've had have been with my eldest two, uh, when, when he used to surf, um, and certainly now, you know, Siander is going to very soon be comfortable in stuff bigger than I am these days, so uh, that's a kind of fun moment to be at, and we've kind of explored the 
the Devon coastline and beyond in the UK a bit together. And and we do trips back to South Africa together to surf as well. So, well, me to work and, and him to surf. So, yeah, I love surfing with... Uh, I love surfing with Siander and and doing other stuff with the with the crew. Family's everything. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping maybe one day that my kids all will get into it. But like you say, I think it's important not to push children into into doing things they don't want to do. I say that with my daughter. She she loves jujitsu, but she's one of those kids that if you didn't take her, she probably wouldn't do it. Uh, she gets out of bed in the morning when you've got to go training and she's like I don't want to go but then when she actually gets in the car and we get there she was, she's with all her mates and uh, and she loves it but yeah my, my son's four so he only just remembers his name I think <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool um, what what else have you got on the horizon at the moment? Have you anything- yeah, it's quite quite an exciting time. I mean, I mentioned that we're launching our merchandise, so um, you yeah, know, definitely check in on the uh, Surface Not Street Children Instagram, which is at Surface Not Street Children, because uh, that, that some of the uh, some of that will go out before Christmas, which is which is kind of exciting for us. Then we are only our partnership um, has taken a sort of new has gone to new strength, and Geordie. Um, has become our ambassador kind of in a more official capacity. Um, we're launching a clothing range with O'Neill, uh, which is in around about February. So we've just shot an edit with, with Geordie. Um, so we're, it's, I've seen it, it won't come out till February, but, um, it's going to be fantastic. So we're really excited to, to put that out there early next year. We're, I'll go back to South Africa early December for the Belito Pro because a number of our kids are involved with that and the, the the junior events around that as well. So there's loads going on and uh, and we've got uh, you know the the programs have run all the way through COVID, so it's been a busy period and you know making sure that we do this um, safely. And when I say programs during the lockdowns, we we didn't obviously run the same types of programs, but the support that we provide to the kids was there throughout that time. So also for me, it's just the next year is, is a lot about making sure that we're able to just navigate this crisis that we're still, the pandemic era that we're still in. Um, you know, a lot of charities have collapsed during this time and we're fortunate that, you know, our supporters have rallied around, but we just want to make sure that we sort of uh, come out of it strong as well. So yeah, a, a lot going on, uh, but you know, what's the goal? I mean, we want to, give more and more kids access to the programs in 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 durban and and our program in mozambique in in tofu north of maputo in in that country awesome i'd like to finish off this with a quick fire round so the first question is if you could surf one fin surfboard set up for the rest of your life would it be single fin twin fin thruster finless thruster there we go <laughs> Your favorite surfer and why? Surfer, uh, I'm probably Kelly actually, just because he's a lifelong hero, uh, like for many people, uh, and and also you know he character wise, I, I think he's a great character and a thoughtful guy as well. Um, so yeah, probably Kelly. The first surf film you ever watched? Uh, it's definitely uh, Crystal Voyager. Yeah, George Greener. I had it on VHS. I, I got it from the yeah. back of a uh, surfer magazine. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A long time ago. <laughs> Man, I, 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 I tracked down the soundtrack to, to it a few years ago as well. Before before it was out on on uh, online, I tracked it down in, in Margaret River in a, in a CD store. 
Uh, that was I was so stoked for that. Sorry, carry on. The last surf film you watched or surf edit? Last surf edit was this week. I watched one, uh, a left point break thing in England. Uh, it was someone shredding some left uh, point breaks that looked so good. I mean, look like it was probably filmed in that last swell recently. It wasn't me, was it? Was it? On, it was on, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe. It was on uh, Stab. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've, there's quite a few British surf edits come up through um, the uh, the Aussie surf mags or online yeah. surf mags, aren't they? That's because they're always amazed at the surf in the UK. Yeah. I don't understand why. Like, I, maybe it's because they ran the, the ASP events in sort of August in uh, in uh, in Newquay and they never got surf. But for, like, there's such good ways here and anywhere you go, surf in England, there's no surf in England. Yeah, I never got that why they run those surf competitions in the summer. Yeah, it is a little bit warmer, but it's like anywhere, isn't it? Like, you, it's everything's seasonal. The winter yeah. swells come through in Hawaii, well, because it's because it's the winter yeah. and that's where the low pressures are formed oh, during that time of year. Kaching factor, money. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one, but there you go. Um, the worst and the best person to share a lineup with. Oh man. Um, man if i say the worst i'll get into such trouble but um the best probably my brother i surf a lot with my brother um and he he used to come out and visit a lot in south africa and now i'm spending a lot of time in croyd and he lives in Braunton. um so definitely uh definitely him and that's also alongside siander which is a no-brainer surfing with my son um and then uh the worst oh man well I guess when you're in when you're in a zone like there's when there's a contest on is any of the the top pros because it's so depressing seeing how well they surf. I mean, I I have one. I remember sort of paddling up a wave and Gabriel Medina did this slice. I could actually feel the wind and and hear this kind of uh, from his board, and it was so extraordinarily fast that I almost just got out there and then you know. I probably would have. <laughs> I probably would have. Um, if there was one wave that you could surf for the rest of your life, what would that be? Oh man, there's a point break with with or without. I mean, like in a perfect scenario, like without crowds or in a perfect scenario. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, there's a wave. I'm not going to name it, but there's a point break in the region in where our project is in Mozambique. If I could get that without the new crowd that's sort of like it's it's so crowded now but if i could get that that would be it and then pretty i also rate croyd hey you know that would that would be maybe next on my list or i mean obviously durban because that's home but uh one of those three tom hewitt thank you very much for talking to me on the podcast and i appreciate your time yeah oh, thanks for having me cheers mate cheers and that's it next episode will be with Stuart cooper who owns his own film brand called Stuart Cooper Films, who does motivational jiu-jitsu videos with lots of high-level guys. He's also a black belt himself uh, living over in Canada. So look forward to that one. Thanks for listening. Listening.